Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel, editorial assistant at the Saturday Paper, and I'm joined by Anders Furs, editor of Daily Review. Hello, hi, Anders. Hi, Andy. And co-curator of Melbourne Cinematheque and Swinburne University lecturer Eloise Ross. Hello, Eloise. Hey, Andy. It's the end of 2019 and we are here to take stock by counting down our top three films of the year. We're also going to look forward to our picks of the films coming out over the summer break. And we've also got an interview with legendary Australian director Gillian Armstrong, who made the movies My Brilliant Career, Starstruck, The Last Days of Shea Nu and Oscar and Lucinda. But today we're going to be talking to her about her 1994 film Little Women and what she makes of the latest adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's book by director Greta Gerwig. But first, our review. I want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe, to be a famous writer? Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says... My girls have a way of getting into mischief. Well, so do I. This is Meg, Amy, Beth and Joe. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. You are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. Little Women is the much-talked-about eighth film adaptation of the 1868 novel of the same name by Louisa May Alcott. The film stars Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Eliza Scanlon, Laura Dern, Timothy Chalamet, Tracy Letts and more. Shall we go on? Um, This has been awaited by film communities around the world, I think it's safe to say and is uh, also written by Gerwig. So it's a kind of brand new and more modern take on the classic tale. Um, We've all been to see it recently. So shall we dig in? What do we think about this highly anticipated 2019 film adaptation? Andy? Well, yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, we did single it out as one of the films we were most looking forward to at the end of 2018. It's been adapted quite a few times before, most recently, well, at least um, cinematically, by Gillian Armstrong, who we will hear from later. And I'd watched that last week and I couldn't help but be reminded of it quite a lot. Even though the Gerwig has taken a different angle to this with much more focus on the adult lives of the women. Uh, and it, she kind of colours in around the story that people will know. And it really, really helps if you do know this story because it is quite a strangely constructed version of events. Um, I think you might have had a similar experience to me, Anders, where if I hadn't watched recently watched the the story, I would have been lost for the first hour and a half, maybe. Well, as someone who read the book decades ago and have since forgotten it, I was quite confused by the temporal scrambling that Gerwig does here, and I did it did leave me wondering, or it's worth examining maybe what she's trying to get out there or what the effect of that is beyond me being beyond confusing confusing yeah. I because I mm. was a little bit confused by some of the uh time shifting which usually as you will hear uh when we're talking about our favorite films of the year I mean usually this is not something that throws me or something that I'm bothered by but I found it a bit difficult to follow some of these multiple timelines that were going on yeah I think it I don't know I've lost count but it took me maybe the fourth switching in time for me to realise that that's in fact what was happening because the very first one is kind of mentioned. It's very clearly signposted that it's a flashback and then the subsequent ones are not and I didn't kind of catch on for quite some time that it had actually flashed forward again and then was flashed back and so, yeah, it did take me quite some time and after that I got the hang of it, you know, almost immediately but... And, and I don't think that it really ruined, you know, or made me confused or anything, but it was odd. Yeah, why? Do you have any ideas on why she might have done that? Well, it felt to me partway through like, okay, this is somebody who is in love with this story. She loves these women so much. There is a thematic link going on here. And I feel like the problem is that she has surrounded her, Gerber has surrounded herself with other people who similarly love the book. And this is like a love letter to the book. Because if you don't know these themes and if you're not familiar with them, it's going it, to, it, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a loss. I mean, is it talking about how these things stretch across time? Because there are certain things that people know, even if they haven't read the book, they'll know a certain character dies. There'll be a couple of other things have kind of entered into lore. And so in this way, it's weird that we get these key elements and then we get people reacting to them like 20 minutes, 30 minutes later because of this strange way that she's wanted to show how sisterhood spans time or these passions can be shown to be ongoing and consistent with these characters. So it is 
it kind of does work toward the end, but yeah, for a long time I was like, this isn't only this is only working against you know and sapping some of the key scenes. I thought for their emotional power. I didn't necessarily think that that was being done with the timeline of the film. I did find it quite. I don't know. I mean, this is going to sound like you know damning with faint praise, but like it was a sufficient kind of resonating with the emotional um, context of the book. Uh, created by kind of visiting all of these characters along their particular moments and kind of just dipping in and out of their lives. You yeah, know, I think the key thing though is you have to know the book <laughs> for it to really work. Right. Well, I don't know the book. I've never read it. I am familiar enough with the story to get it, but then maybe I maybe I missed things. Well, that's probably likely. But I feel like there needs to be somebody in the creative process who was not familiar with the book to go, you could maybe make it a bit clearer here or you could kind of help out the readers and people who aren't who are going to come to this totally fresh. I do have to say, I, I mean, yeah, the the pacing was a bit strange in parts, but I, I enjoyed it um, much the same. I the, the performances were very strong, I thought, and helped – really helped propel the film because they were and they are very endearing interesting characters and I think a lot of that interest helped keep the my interest in the film going along particularly Florence Pugh who is having a, a really good year I think yeah, she was great in this too mm. um, but they all were um, compelling as well the four main women what did you think about the performances love them thought they were all mm. great yeah I think that playing with the time frame and playing with the depth and breadth of the character portraits and of their, you know, family experience, by breaking that up and inserting other stuff, you know, like all of this focus on the writing of the book and then, you know, that final coda and then all of this self-reflexive commentary on the process of writing a book as a woman and living in the world as a woman and all of these sorts of things. I mean, was she just completely trying to shift its role in culture, not as a story simply of some women living at a particular period of time, but as something else and, in fact, building it as a commentary on itself, that what she was interested in doing was, in fact, not just adapting the novel or making a new movie that was, you know, just the same characters, different actors doing the same thing, but, in fact, just reformulating the entire concept of it. Because that was very obvious and I thought was not at all heavy-handed, her, you know, deconstructing the experience of the woman in patriarchal society occasionally some of the lines were a little um you know they were quite forceful and obvious but I thought very well done and very enjoyable and very kind of just easy to take you know to be taken along with oh yeah I like that it's kind of like a a a ren you know making the events you know what's that word the alienation like making um the events strange so that you think about about them in that Brechtian kind of sense yeah, mm, which yeah. I actually maybe love because, and I feel like we have maybe talked about this or at least Anders, I know I talked about it with you, but I was really sceptical about this film because it seems just so perfectly born out of everyone who's obsessed with movies at the moment and is obsessed with, you know, Saoirse Ronan and Greta Gerwig and Timothy Chalamet. This is just like how could this film even possibly exist? What a dream. And so I thought, is this going to be any good or is it just ticking everyone's boxes of everyone's favourite things? But so, you know, kind of being this thing that makes you actually think about the process of the book and film being made is like anticipating our scepticism. It was like it worked for me and I really, really didn't think it was going to. Yeah, right, okay. Um, Yeah, I thought the costumes production design, particularly amazing. Yes, yeah, yeah, I hope it wins Oscars for that. That was a really, really strong suit. I really love that setting. Anders and I, straight after the film, were talking about how beautiful New England looks. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't it always, though? Yeah, yeah it's hard to miss, <laughs> particularly in the autumn when they have some key scenes. Mm. Uh, but I've, if I hadn't read the story and didn't know, I would actually be waiting for some point for someone to show how each of the girls had a different father because they never once yeah. looked remotely sister-like to me. I mean, maybe that's not necessary to this particular telling of the story. Here it felt like they were so distinct. Uh Um, And it's interesting that none of the women who play the little women are American. 
Uh-huh. I think it's like Irish, English, Australian. Yeah. I thought the, the the scenes of them together in the house, you know, it's just impossible not to like them, to feel like yeah. they're just, there's just so much camaraderie and warmth. And it's so obvious that Greta loves them all so much that even when they act impetuously or badly, mm. it, it's never going to be, be like a, a collapsing of their character or anything or any real moral failing. It's always something that they're going to get over because it's just so much warmth in this film. Yeah. I really liked it a lot. I would like to see it again. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I enjoyed it too. Um, and the more I I think about it, the more the more it's sort of growing uh, for me, particularly this meta this meta element that I wasn't quite expecting to be so pronounced in the film, particularly as it ended. But, yeah, Eloise, your comments about the form of it have also got me thinking about, yeah, that it was woven throughout. And, yeah, just what, such wonderful central performances too. Yeah, there was this moment in the cinema where the, a, a kiss happened and I watched you grab, bring your fingers together <laughs> and bring them dro- just to below your clavicle and go, hmm. <laughs> and you didn't even notice you were doing it. Who was kissing? I can't it was a Laurie. Was it Timothee Chalamet? Yeah, it was. And it's uh, <laughs> so moved. I know, and I couldn't hardly stop laughing because it was such a sweet moment. And I was like, oh, thank you, Greta Gerwig, for making that moment happen in Anders' life. I'm glad I had that response. Um, yeah, definitely worth watching for sure. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm going to run away and watch um, this 1996 version. Mm. Oh, the 1994 version. Sorry, yes. 1994 version. Yes, it's definitely. I just feel like. High school boys should watch this. That's, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also appreciated that um, I'm so used to Meryl Streep even having tiny roles and just dominating whatever scene she's in, no matter how small she's trying oh, to be. Oh, you liked that she didn't. And here yeah. I thought she yeah. was fine. She was good as an old battle axe, as yeah. she self-described. Yeah, there was no domineering of the No, it was good, yeah. She was, she was here. She was used um, judiciously, I thought. Mm, and Laura Dern. I know, imagine having Laura Dern as your mother. Mm, yeah, I, you wouldn't want to leave at the house. No, no, no. When she cried, I was like, don't make Laura Dern cry. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you do this to me? <laughs> now, there were some scenes where I was being rem- reminded explicitly of the 1994 version and it made me miss Claire Danes. And, right, yeah. Yeah, she was just magnetic. She's such a wonderful actress. Yeah, we should get a role that would make... Oscar people notice her because mm. um, she's so brilliant. Mm. Agreed. Anyway, on that clear Dane's loving note, Now let's hear from somebody who knows more about Little Women than we do. My interview with Gillian uh, Armstrong and I began by asking about the sense of ownership that she would feel over the film that she had spent so much of her life invested in and then seeing it brought to the screen again by somebody else uh, 25 years later. Everyone was laughing because I put up on Twitter last week that I'd finally seen Greta Gerwig's Little yes. Women <laughs> and that I'd said in a thing, I plucked up courage and people were saying, she said you plucked up courage. I was like, I, yeah, I said, they probably don't realise it. We spend so long on a film, the director does, really, um, more than anyone, you know, where there's mm. the beginning. I mean, the screenplay, right, obviously, is often, you know, there was already the first draft from Robin Twycourt and so on, oh, first or a couple of drafts, but... So then for me, and because I'm, um, if anything's set in the past or anything is based around a real person, so I've basically done my thesis on the Alcots. Yes. Um, And in that period and about her father and I went to Concord and to her house (laughs) and saw the desk and so so that I really understood the world and especially when I've made a film about in another country in, about someone who's very significant to another culture like Louisa Alcott was so you know so from and then the whole process of getting the script right and then finding the location and then the cast so you know there's such an incredible detailed process to finally you know actually shoot you know building the set based around this and that for this and then the, and then finally editing it and then putting the music in mm. it's years of my life and then the people don't realize there's this you know drudgery afterwards where I've got to do pre- check the prints I've got to go every premiere I go ahead to do a sound check yes yeah because um, you know you know it's that thing you learn if you don't you turn up and find out it was run at half the sound mm. level or something and they usually at like midnight or one in the morning or something. all that stuff so you know um in everything that's the final part of being involved, you know, seeing the poster and mm. then, the, you know, the book that went out and they made a documentary and 
and then and then there's this connection I have with it. So they're your babies. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're your babies. I mean, I know the dialogue off by heart. I did start watching one of the BBC ones or something, and just suddenly hearing these other people saying, "Joe, you know," and lines. That are Louise's lines really mm. from the book saying something, Joe, you know, your hair, I'm like, <laughs> and so um, it, it was, you know, I was in two minds whether it's mm. better not to go and see it, the greatest ever, and then I thought, well, I love um, Sersha, mm. um, and who worked with me on Death Defying Acts when she was 11, yes, and, right, and then I, I actually told David Michaud last night, um, the Australian filmmaker, mm. who um, I've just, I saw The King a few weeks ago, which I think is really wonderful. And I said, I have to say, when I saw Timothy Chalamet in The King, it gave me greater confidence about going to see Little Women. Because mm. actually, I'm, I'm trying to say I wanted it to be good. I didn't want to sit there and see it not good. Um, so I said, because I didn't, I thought, oh, he's, because Christian Bale was so perfect as Laurie. Um, and by the way, there has been, I think, a year of people discussing this on yes. Twitter, and which is <laughs> yeah. lovely. A lot of people saying how much they love mine um, and still love it and so on. So mm. so you think, well, so I've got nothing to lose. I mean, though, if they all love this one better, I don't want to read about it, yeah, of course, because yeah, yeah. I'm a human being. <laughs> um, so it was such a relief to finally... Well, I didn't finish Tim. So when I saw Timothy Chalamet and how fantastic he was as Henry IV, when I really thought, oh, that's miscarting, I just think this kid is mm. amazing has, and has got such depth. I thought he can do no wrong. If he's with Sersha, that film will be all right. So, um, and obviously being a fan of Britain's anyway. Yes, and yeah. seeing, so um, Sony kindly had a special screening for me in Sydney. Oh, great. Um, yeah, yeah mm. um, two weeks ago. And I took along a couple of friends, including Jeffrey Simpson, the cinematographer who shot um, uh, My Little mm. Women. And... Um, I was really um, relieved that she'd taken a really brave... Have you seen it yet? No. Oh, she's got really a want, yeah. whole um, brave um, way of approaching it that's completely different. Yes, yeah, so, well, I've read a lot about it already. Did she get in touch with you? No, 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 no. Okay. No. Because from what I gather, she moves quite quickly through the story and some people have suggested that as a, it's a great film but possibly it would have been a better TV series. Like, there would have been more time to get into the characters. And... Um, well, be interesting. I will say nothing. Okay, sure. Okay. No, because I think, mm. I, I mean, I'm saying that because I'm not, I mean, I actually think she, she did a, a really good job. Um, and, I, and, I, and I really think that it's good. I mean, the, the, it's important that, um, I mean, she did the right thing in taking up her own look at it. Mm. Um, because if... There's, I mean, I did a remake. I I purposely decided not to go back and look at George Cukor's at all. I had a memory of it from the sort of childhood, mm. um, because I, you know, I just thought, well, then I'll be, in, you know, I was shooting a scene, and I'll, his will be still in my head because I've got, you know, obviously got a visual memory. Mm, yeah. um, so I don't know what her process was, but um, I think it, I think she. Oh, well, I can tell. I think she did. Sort of like me, she researched Louise Ralcott because she's put some things in from her real life. Yes. Um, and and the period and the family and then you know and and has has her own take of it, which is as I said, I think it's really, really and it was great because I could actually just sit back and watch the film. It was mm. sort of like my characters um, had almost like grown up and because there's a little bit more of them as adults so it was like watching them oh that's mm. what they're doing now a sort of thing yeah yeah okay, sure. yeah but no i think she's done a lovely job i think Sersha's um and timothy are fantastic and um well actually all the cast are mm. really good and the thing that i thought was um really brilliant in the casting is that Laura Dern actually looked quite like Sersha when you yeah. see them together yeah right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. so, they, so that's lovely as a mother-daughter thing. Um, mm. If I, I was unhappy, I mean, I was, I, I shouldn't say I was actually unhappy because it was lovely, the reaction to the remake, the people so supportive, mm. not supportive of me. Yes, yeah. um, but I was greater, I would find, oh, that's an awful thing to go at thinking, because the George Cooker one was many more years between mm. his and mine, yeah, and yeah. I could, you know, wear the badge of, well, I'm the female director, <laughs> yeah. you know. This is the first time this story's been told by a woman. Mm. Whereas, yeah. you know, Greta 
um, would have been aware, I imagine, that a lot of people were saying, well, we loved Gillian Armstrong's, or they called mm. the 1994 version. Mm. Um, so we don't know whether we want to see another, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> don't touch it sort of thing, which was, you know, as I said, incredibly touching for mm. me and lovely to think that I've, you know, made a film that stayed with people. Definitely, yes. Um, and in America, by the way, apparently it is run every second Christmas. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Great. So okay. it's really stayed with them. Sure. So it's either It's a Wonderful Life or Little Women. It's a big Christmas movie. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's why right. it's, yeah. it's had, like, this whole life. So mm. I think for... for Greta, that must have been an awful burden, which she must have had to just block, that she was making something that people were going to compare yeah. to, mm. to the, you know, the, the 1994 one. Mm. But the thing I did think, it's really interesting, because that the message still needs to be told. I mean, and I, I do think, because mm. there was a whole line, well, it's good to have something for this generation. And, and then when I saw it, I thought, well, you know what? The generation that saw mine, half of them, especially the um, uh, a lot of the women who would have seen it, had all come from the feminist era. So we all knew. So I didn't need to over-explain some mm. of the, the things about women's roles and everything, which are explained a little more explicitly in hers. Um, but I think that's good because actually I think this generation, they don't realise what um, all the other generations of women fought for over the years. Um, so I, I actually think that it's um, really strong, and mm. and that, it, and I think there'll be a whole. Well, obviously, there's going to be a new young audience who all um, who love because she's got such a hot cast. You know, yeah. she's got mm. you know Emily from Harry Potter and, mm. and Timothy, and so there'll be all these young women. So I think um, she should really be proud of it. I I really enjoyed it. What do those girls do over there all day? Over the mysteries of female life, there is drawn a veil, best left undisturbed. Columbia Pictures invites you to share the holidays with a family of little women. Joe. If I were going to be a writer, I'd go to New York and pursue the stage. Are you shocked? Very. Meg. What's that strange smell? Beth. What's your Christmas wish? Perhaps we could send the Hummels our bread. They have so little and we have so much. Amy. I've waited my whole life to be kissed. And what if I miss it? I promise to kiss you before you die. And now to our top three films of 2019. So there were big shifts this year with Netflix moving into the critical realm. Last year, Roma was the film they used to test the waters, and now we will likely have Netflix films in our top threes of the year, which would have seemed weird a couple of years ago. Do you guys have any thoughts generally about the state of cinema in 2019 with film festivals and Netflix and other streaming services kind of pushing a lot of the better stuff? Well, I think uh, cinema is still alive. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Contrary to certain reports Um, If you think of cinema as something that's beyond American movies Then I think it's been And by American movies I mean American blockbuster filmmaking Then I think it's been an amazing year as always Because thank God we live in a city like Melbourne That's full of festivals Full of wonderful stuff That's still being made um, From right around the world I mean just talking to people anecdotally um, There is some... I guess there is disquiet or, or concern about, uh, you know, the future windows for those kinds of films. You know, we say that streaming brings about this wonderful revolution where we can see everything in our homes, but only a small amount of stuff gets a release beyond those festival environments. And, you know, um, are art house cinemas, the traditional homes of that kind of cinema, are they playing it increasingly safe? Some people think yes, mm, some people yeah. think no. It's an interesting question. But still, in terms of quality of films, there's been some amazing films this year. Definitely. We'll hear about some of them soon. Eloise, yep. do you have any thoughts generally? I don't know, but, you know, going off Anders, maybe cinema is kind of the, – or the, like, global discussion of cinema is going back to pre, you know, Hollywood kind of domination of yeah, interesting. medium and taking it back to – just this, um, you know, smaller kind of experimental element form that could speak to, you know, different groups and, but, you know, in a different kind of way, like, you know, have, well, not in a different way because 
when silent cinema was around, it was much more kind of international due mm. to subtitles or intertitles. Anyway, I don't really know what I'm saying, but maybe, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, just moving into like less of that Hollywood domination. Yeah, yeah that's really know, interesting. Narrow window, mm. et cetera. Given that Hollywood had such an amazing year this year with their blockbusters and oh, ten poles and Disney, yeah, probably, the Fox I didn't see anything though. So. No, this is thing. It's like we can yeah. actually happily exist outside of. Yeah. Oh, yes, I see. Yeah, totally. Mm. And again, the numbers are. I mean, you know, record-breaking Avengers uh, blockbuster uh, box office, blah blah blah. But if you adjust for inflation, you do see that. I mean, they're just not the commonly common spectacles that they once were. We've known that for a long time now, I think. But either I've, I've, I was researching this before and um, for another story I was writing, and uh, I don't think any film from the last t- 20 years since Titanic on an adjusted for inflation mm. ratio makes the top uh, 20 really? most top-grossing films, or if it, maybe it was the top 10, I don't know, I can't remember. Uh, but, yeah, it, none of them cro- cracked the top 10 anyway from the last yeah, 20 years. interesting, because they do throw around those figures, oh, it's a billion-dollar Exactly, but it's mean. masking the fact that ticket costs are through the roof. And also, I mean, look at video game. A video game, mm. oh, it's gross, makes five times what The Avengers has made. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skull! What do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? Um, Anders, would you like to start with your number three favourite film of 2019? Okay, so my third favourite film of 2019 is director Ari Aster's Midsummer, oh, which right. I found to be such a well-crafted and affecting horror film. He gets the details so right, I think, in this film. And in a movie like this, which is all about a stressful, uh, emotionally abusive relationship or emotionally toxic relationship, those details really matter. Um, he's very good at sketching out social dynamics. So you have this central group of PhD bros, essentially, who are you know good-looking if slightly unpleasant, and one of them, Christian, uh, played by Jack Raynor, his girlfriend is Danny, uh, played by Florence Puke, who we've just been talking about in Little Women. Um, she's a major factor in this film's success, I think. Her performance, she's playing a woman who's dealing with extreme trauma, or not dealing with it, but she's trying to process this sort of horrific event that's happened to her family in this strange heightened environment, this small Swedish town, culture town, um, where strange things are happening, and she has a barely supportive boyfriend. Anyway, Pew captures all of this in a very naturalistic, not heightened or in danger of turning into into a sort of ersatz emotion. Like, it feels very real, genuine, uh, and very low-key, which I think is why the film works, because around her performance, Asta has a stylistic bag of tricks which she's unafraid to reach into, and so the film itself is quite heightened in certain moments and draws attention to its own artifice um, and all of that kind of stuff. But it's all anchored around this central, grounded performance, which I think is the key to the film's... Uh, what makes the film work, as are the just uh, extraordinary amount of rituals and ceremonies that the filmmakers invent for this film. Like every time one ritual ends, another one begins, and each one's a bit more batshit crazy than the last. So it's very impressive just on that level. And also for how seductive Asta makes his cult appear, they offer Danny community, love, acceptance, rational explanations for every nagging question that she has, which is a lot more than she gets from her boyfriend and his friends. So he's very clever, I think, at at portraying that. Um, It's also a funny film. It's awkward. And uh, it was full of awkward moments, I should say. The film itself is not awkward. It's terrifying. And then it has this amazing final image that is seared into my memory um, forever as one of the key images from the film year. And it just sums up everything that's so good about the film. Puke deserves an Oscar. Go watch Midsummer if you haven't already. I loved it. Yeah, hopefully she will be getting nominated for one for Little Women. She's well, she deserves it for this. In the mix. Mm. I haven't seen it. 100% recommend it. You can probably skip. I watched the director's cut too, which was <laughs> a bit... I've heard that it's not as, you know, that it just explains things that are unnecessary. That yeah, are exactly. Kind of, that are know, implied by the cinematic medium. A hundred percent, hundred percent. So skip that. Watch the um, theatrical cut. Great. It was great. Cool. Okay. Well, my one of my top films of the year is 
we'll preface this with knowing how much you dislike lists. I dislike lists a lot and I had a very hard time picking three to come up with. But this is a film that I tweet searched me and I did uh, the day after seeing it say this might be one of my top films of the year um so i thought it you know had should have pride of place on my list is baccarat the film by kleber mendoza filho and juliano dornelias i'm gonna say probably pronounced um those names incorrectly but this is a film that i saw at miff did either of you guys see this i did see it Yes, cool. with you. Great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was a very long line of people seeing yeah. it. That's my yeah, excuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. Anyway, of course I remember you there. Uh, so <laughs> I love this film because I feel like this, it was almost inevitable that it was going to be on my list because I've loved both of his other feature mm. – or uh, Phil Ho. Um, I've loved both of his other films this decade. So he's made two others, Neighbouring Sounds and Aquarius, that we have – loved mm-hmm. on this podcast yes. before. Um, but this is kind of – was just this film that just completely stunned and surprised me in all sorts of really brilliant um, and impressive ways. It was a, this kind of mix of a sci-fi western genre mash. Um, gives you a little bit of whiplash, I think, um, in terms of like how it goes with certain – you know, in certain directions, which I really, really loved. Uh, overall, it was this kind of crazy, wacky. These I feel like these none of these terms really make sense in a really organic way. But hopefully, I'm giving some <laughs> indication of what the film is like. This crazy, like wacky, slow build, filled with, I think, actually, like even though it was kind of ludicrous and absurd in terms of plot um, and in terms of setup, had some really nice gentle observations about humanity and barbarity on both sides of the fence. So it's kind of essentially, in the end, pit two extreme um, philosophies against, or, you know, political kind of sides against each other in a way that was, you know, did seem very kind of simplistic. Um, and so I think that it could show some, shed some really nice light on the way that humans interact with each other, mm. which is what we see in depth in Neighbouring Sounds and also Aquarius. And that's maybe something that gives this film just a little bit more resonance than it might otherwise have in just being this kind of like very crazy plot development from yeah. one point to another. Yeah. Um, and Udo Kier is in it and he's fucking wacky <laughs> and just so good. So I don't know. I just haven't been – I literally have thought about this film every couple of days since I saw it and I'm desperate to see it again. I – I feel like it's not, I mean, you know, as much as Aquarius is not an easy sell necessarily for Australian indie cinemas, I feel like this is even less so. Yeah, it is pretty wild. I um, mean, it's full of surprises, but I absolutely loved about it. Yeah. I mean, it oh, was just it so unpredictable. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I right. left the cinema going, "That's I've never seen a film like that before. Yeah. But it is true because, yeah, what you were saying about barbarity and humanity, it is like it's not something that you, I mean, maybe that's occurred to you over time, but after coming out of that, I was just like, that's a crazy mix-up of genres and I love yeah. what he was doing with that. But I never thought about the the, alter, the humanity mm. like at the centre of the story and what it's really telling by using all these genres to, and being so willful. It's yeah. great. Anyway, definitely a highlight um, of my year at, in the cinema. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, same here. It's right up there for me. Um, my number three is a, uh, a film everybody's talked about a lot already, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Tarantino's um, magnum opus, I suppose. Um, another film I caught at Cannes, and it was just so electrifying to see somebody with that skill and that sort of budget and that sort of creative freedom just given all this space to just stretch out and really – explore what he loved which is you know obviously the history of cinema and Hollywood itself it's just a really great combination of cast and text and he's the right person to be able to tell that story I feel like a lot of the times if you give somebody with that Tarantino sort of background there's a real chance of smugness and feeling shut out and this sort of elite storytelling for himself and his bro friends but actually it's quite a beautifully realized world and it's I found it really welcoming really interesting the ending didn't quite sit with me the way it did with other people, but just, there was just so much to appreciate about it, and there was even more to appreciate in the second viewing. Um, all the acting is pretty much faultless. I really liked the just the texture of it, the way that there were there was a lot to get just to dig into. Everybody, I feel like, who saw this could easily write an essay about it because there's so much going on. At the same time as the number one complaint was there wasn't enough going on um, from a lot of people who saw it. But, yeah, it really, really worked for me. Okay, my number two film is... And then we danced. Um, Levin Akin's gay Georgian dance drama. 
Uh, and I really hope this gets picked up next year, either at the Queer Film Festival or ideally in national release as well, because it really does deserve an audience, I think. Um, it's a really nice film about a traditional Georgian dancer, Marab, and here we're talking about Georgia, the country, not the American state, who finds himself attracted to the newest member of his dance troupe. And so they begin this romance, which is set against the ultra-traditional and homophobic context of Georgian society. And that homophobia is underscored by several anonymous credits in the uh, end credits scroll. The filmmakers definitely took a risk in making this film. And what do you mean, like people didn't want their yeah, names attached? Yeah, they didn't attached? want their names associated with it. Wow. Yeah, so there's okay. quite a few people who are credited as anonymous in the uh, credits. And he, uh, Akin himself, is um, Swedish and George- Georgian. And there is an interesting Swedish element going through the film, including a soundtrack which includes... Um, my fave, Robin. Um, but, yeah, so and, – and if you followed any of the uh, news, you know, it debuted in Georgia a few weeks ago now to a really controversial response. There were, you know, far-right protesters uh, picketing the screening. It was, you know, this is like um, – yeah, it's, it's real stuff, I guess. So this sounds really heavy, but I think the brilliance of the film is that the film itself is not – and – there is a lightness of touch to this material that elevates it out of this messy, dark, uh, you know, repressive context and into a realm of heightened and at times even sublime, I would say, emotion. And it's just so energising to see a filmmaker capture that, like just um, raises those beautiful moments of queer desire, uh, mutual queer desire, and really, really emphasizes them the joy in them the uh the emotion that can be found in them and it lingered it lingered with me for long after that screening at myth and it lingers with me still and especially this moment that one of the two main characters seduces the other to the tune of uh robin's honey which is a beautiful uh pop music on screen moment which is something uh that regular listeners would know I love. Uh, so, yeah, it's a great film and I really hope it gets um, some sort of release next year. I reckon it will, though, because the momentum around it is only building. Mm, yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth seeing. I'm desperate to see it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Same. I'm, I'm embarrassed I've missed it. It had such great reception. The final session was booked out at MIF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, yeah, look, that's a sign. Any distributors listening, looking for a very good... Queer film. Yeah. On it. Sell your tickets. Yep. Do it. Cool. Well, I feel like my next two choices are really not that adventurous. Um, So I apologise to anyone who's disappointed by (laughs) that. But hopefully what I have to say about them is maybe, you know, somewhat exciting. So my number two film of the year, Andy, I kind of thought this, I don't know, this is, you know, a little... (laughs) you know, like ticking boxes, but I was like, oh, should I put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on there? But I can't have that and The Irishman because, you know, Mm. these two, like, grand gestures by these two great American filmmakers (laughs) that are both, you know, like, quote-unquote, overlong, um, (laughs) where not much happens. (laughs) Anyway, I can only have one of them, so I picked The Irishman. Oh, great, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good, you know, fortuitous, as it it Mm. might go. I mean, we spoke about this on the last podcast quite extensively, but there are a few other things I feel like, you know, maybe now that more of the discourse has happened because of its uh, appearance on Netflix might, you know, be of interest to people, or at least I've been thinking about more um, in a more pronounced manner since we Mm -hmm. did the last podcast. So. Um, lots of being made of these two two things, I think, that I want to just mention. Inevitably, it seems, um, you know, people have been talking about the fact that maybe nothing much happens in terms of action in this film. I mean, I disagree. I think that so, so much happens. But the very point almost is that very little happens in terms <laughs> of, like, it yeah. being a classic gangster film. There are no fights, not really all much violence. I mean, most of the deaths happen off screen or in this on-screen text. Yeah, which is um, fascinating. Format. It is yeah, fascinating. It's a really interesting it? way of doing it. Um, there are no real exposition of techniques um, or, you know, planning kind of stuff, which is fascinating. Scorsese relies mm. on an audience either knowing or knowing already what goes into, you know, that kind of preparation to be a gangster, I don't know, via the movies, or reading between the lines, you know, like it is what it is. Now I feel like I've kind of a 
say or hear that phrase anymore that's extremely mundane without thinking of the Irishman and if a, you know if a movie changes the way you deal with an everyday kind of you know saying then mm. it's powerful yeah, right that's true which he did before when it comes to cutting garlic like no <laughs> one can cut garlics with, you know very finely without thinking of goodfellas anymore it's true it's yeah. true but you know that's a great thing it's a great thing yeah, it's a fantastic thing this textual world that he builds is, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's so mm. so powerful um, i know with the music and the soundtrack and everything um, I mean, another thing that has been made a big deal of, I found in the discourse, is the fact that even with the facial, you know, the CGI de aging um, of their faces of, you know, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, um, that their bodies were still, you know, visibly old men bodies. And that that was, you know, formed like, you know, made it unbelievable, or that it was kind of an oversight of the filmmakers. And I felt like, I mean, it's true, but it was not a problem for me. And mm. I feel like the reason it wasn't a problem is because it fit within the framework of what the film was trying to do, which was like a kind of paint like how fucking shit this whole world is. Um, and that no one is really having a good time ever. And that, you know, I mean, the film doesn't really like glorify any of their good times. And so it all fit really well. You know, people are like, oh, it's an oversight or they didn't do it or they couldn't be bothered or they should have gotten other bodies. But I was like, maybe it was actually a conscious decision to show how exhausted they all are. Yeah, coming back from World War Two with all these deaths yep. you were responsible for, weight of the world on your shoulders, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, like mm. being beaten up off screen presumably or at least, you know, just kind of like – I mean, you get the sense that he actually – Robert De Niro hates – Everything, yeah, and mm. that he is doing everything reluctantly. Mm. I mean, of course, there's that one major thing in the film that he does reluctantly, but that maybe everything else he does reluctantly as well. And that yeah. for me was communicated through those bodies. So, in terms of those two major things, I mean, there's obviously the other major thing that I'm just not going to mention that is talked about in regards to this film, but that ha- have been kind of raised as problems and I think are actually strengths when it comes to the Irishman. And having, you know, kind of thought about those things, I think that it absolutely deserves to be a top film of 2019. Yeah. It's certainly one of the most talked about iconic films of the year. Mm. And people can catch that on Netflix still. It's just right there. So so you can rewatch it after listening to Ello's insights. (laughs) I can't wait to rewatch it. Neither. (laughs) Um, My number two has been showered with actor awards already, and we talked about it quite a lot on this podcast, and it's Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, (gasps) which has also really stayed with me a lot, and it's responsible for a lot of the more interesting conversations around cinema this year. Um, I re- just There was just so much to love about this. I mean, having grown up in Tasmania, I'd never really seen it render the way that she did on this um, hor- horrific story about um, a young Irish convict woman who's on a revenge mission across Tasmania to Launceston, of all bizarre places. Um, and she's played by Ailing Franciosi, and she was phenomenal. Um, Sam Claffin as Hawkins is like, this, is like the embodiment of colonial evil. I felt there was just so... So much characterization done in so few brushstrokes that obviously we're looking at somebody who's a really masterful filmmaker. Um, definitely worthy of all these awards that she's been given. Um, there was just so much to get into with uh, with this story. I mean, on the surface it is a revenge story, but also there's just so much weight. And there's a lot of, I think, feel like false parallels have been drawn with the criticisms of this film between saying, well, you can't you know, equate you know, Irish um, being the victim of, of English colonialism as an Irish person, as an Aboriginal person. And I don't feel like that's what she's going for here. I don't feel like she's offering them up against each other as a measure, way of measuring the other. I feel like there's just a, everybody's having a really shit time and the English are to blame, I think is really what you kind of come away with as the bonding force between this tracker that uh, she hires to get across Tasmania and um, her own revenge um, for... Uh, the horrific uh, events that take place at the beginning of this film. There's just so many moments here where I just was prickling with the discomfort. I mean, I remember sitting next to you, Elo, when we were watching this in um, Cinema Nova and just going, oh, my God, and scratching away at my nails with my fingers as all these horrific things were playing out. But there was just never a sense of exploitation. There was always a sense that there was a, like, it was definitely justified. People go on, on about, you know, Salo, 120 Days of Sodom, and I felt all the horrific things there were very well justified. And it's a similar thing here where there's definitely a huge um, knowledge and intelligence that's gone into justifying why you're looking at these awful things. So often people can just get distracted by the horror of what they're seeing and not really think about it. But I feel like Jennifer Kent's thought about it a lot. She's consulted with the right people to put on the screen what she's done and it really worked for me. Um, and that's a Nightingale. I'm not sure where you can find it now. I think it's still playing – it's got a limited cinematic release still maybe. Maybe. I mean it is – I think 
it did have a home video release, maybe DVD or yeah. maybe iTunes or whatnot. Yeah, so. anyway, I would recommend stealing yourself and watching The Nightingale. Okay, so my number one film of 2019 is uh, Lucio Castro's End of the Century, um, which I saw at Myth. Um, it's the one film of the year that I keep returning to again and again. And Andy Hazel, uh, <laughs> you will sorry. remember me uh, talking at length about this <laughs> in one of our myth episodes. Um, uh, look, it was a very good year for queer cinema, you yeah. guys. Yeah, it really was. Um, <laughs> this film, it's smart, it's sexy, and it's a little provocative too. And that makes for a poetic Sorry, by poetic, I mean potent cinematic combination. Castro presents us with what at first seems to be your standard portrait of two strangers having a romantic encounter over the course of a weekend. But then with understated style, he pulls a rug from under us. It becomes instead a series of what-ifs, I guess, hypothetical notions of what forms this romance could have taken or could still take. Uh, he sets scenes a decade into the past but doesn't de-age his actors. And I see GI de-aging going on here. They appear to know each other, then they don't, then they do and don't at the same time. The temporal scrambling only serves to further distill the heightened emotion that Castro is playing with here. It's it's On the one hand, you can think, okay, this is like confounding and confusing and it's like a queer version of Before Sunrise but with some weird time stuff going on. What is the point? But the film seems to hinge on a moment where the younger versions of these two characters discuss an extract from Closer to the Knives, a work written by the artist and AIDS activist David Wojnarowicz. And the words themselves appear on screen. So the film sort of breaks its traditional form for this one moment. And this is what we see on screen. I'm getting close, quote, uh, I'm getting closer to the coast and realise how much I hate arriving at a destination. Transition is always a relief. Destination means death to me. If I could figure out a way to remain forever in transition, in the disconnected and unfamiliar, I could remain in a state of perpetual freedom. The disconnected and unfamiliar. Don't you want more movies that give you that, to give you a chance to jump at this perpetual freedom? What an intoxicating feeling it is to experience this um, in a cinema in daily life and, of course, the tragedy of life. And <laughs> if, if I, if I want to get um, hyperbolic, the tragedy of cinema is that all <laughs> sorts of things get in the way of giving you this sense of perpetual freedom, this disconnect and unfamiliar. And I felt that sensation watching the film of, like, the reality that had been constructed for me, my assumptions, the film, the way the film had taught me to view it. Um, all of that falling away halfway through when I felt this sort of exhilaration that I think that quote is also getting to and is very interesting to think about in terms of a queer context, a queer relationship, queer romance, queer desire. So it's such an interesting film that's full of elements and it's hard to believe it's this guy's debut film um, and it's definitely stayed with me the most in terms of things to think about, ponder and feel. Great. Sounds great. I'm devastated, and cool. as I've said before, I really wanted to see that, and I had me fatigue and just didn't. And so oh, your top two ones that I was, you know, kind of aching to see. Hope, hopefully, hopefully you can next year. Hopefully, I yeah. Can. I hope end of the century gets some. I mean, it's a harder sell than. Um, the other one, and then we dance, but it deserves an audience too because it's yeah, so you're really out there. You're the only person I know who's really out there batting for this film that I've yeah, heard. Yeah, no, I'm all. It, and it's, you make it sound incredible. Like, it's, it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's pretty. Isn't it pretty short? Yeah, it yes, it is. It's about ninety. It's not even ninety minutes. Oh, it's welcome minutes. change. It does all of this in. It's it's such a complex film. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, End I love it. Yep. L'homme intéressé par ma fille est Milanais. Nous partons là-bas s'il le portrait lui plaît. Il a épuisé déjà un peintre avant vous. Que s'est-il passé Je ne sais pas. 
My number one is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So, oh my, oh my God, is that Andy's too? Yes. No, oh. but it's, no, it's an honourable mention. <laughs> wow. Like this, I feel like I felt like it was going to be all of our top. But anyway, I'm glad that it's not. But this is Celine Sciamma's latest film and everyone who has seen it, well, not everyone, you know, there's been a few naysayers that I've had around, but they're, basically everyone loves this film and I love it for all the reasons that other people are obsessed with it too and I don't know if I can really, you know, do it justice by rabbiting on about them. But essentially, you know, there are a couple of just really engaging, you know, like experiential kind of things that I love about this film, like the the sound editing, the close-ups, you know, oral close-ups of the paintbrush and the pencil that she's sketching with and the environmental sounds of um, being in this, like, isolated location, essentially. The editing, which is so kind of dramatic, even though it's understated somehow. Um, the blocking and framing of all of the characters within this frame at this essentially single location until, you know, the kind of coda of the film. Everything is stunning. But I love what this film says about, and it says it both quietly and extraordinarily loudly, about the erasure of women and women's experiences from Mm -hmm. art through most strikingly... Well, no, it's not even really fair to say that, but there's this incredible scene where they reenact an abortion and that is kind of like focusing on that is really draws your attention to the fact that, yeah, where are all the paintings about this? Like, mm-hmm. um, that you know, why isn't this kind of stuff being heralded as, as a key experience, medical experience and also emotional experience? Um, and then, of course, you know, those final two scenes. Mm. God, um, don't even fucking start oh Yes, I feel like... This film has so much to give on an aesthetic, experiential and also, you know, historical kind of like and critical level that it's just – I saw it twice with, within like a week mm. Um, mm, yeah. at MIF and I'm not the only one who did and i you know, desperate to see it again when it comes mm. out on Boxing Day. Boxing Day, Day yes, so. listeners, get amongst it. Mm. Yeah, what a Definitely. film. Definitely. Fantastic film. Yeah, you're making me feel like an idiot for not having it at number one. <gasps> But instead, I've decided to go with the same film that I've already talked about twice on this <gasps> podcast already, If Bill Street Could Talk, uh-huh. um, which is still – I just can't, nothing has touched the opening few moments of me sitting down and watching that just feeling like I'm just being carried along by somebody who is so good at what they're doing and I'm just already in love with everything that's about to come. I don't know how Barry Jenkins does that, but he does it and he does it better than he's ever done it, I think, in Beale Street. Um, similarly to Jordan Peele's Us, which is an honourable mention for me, I felt like that was just a richer, deeper text than the film that he became really famous for, Get Out, the previous yeah. year. Same thing with Moonlight with Barry Jenkins. It's just so much. He's, he's taken this, this higher profile and this bigger canvas he's been able to get and he just gets deeper and it's more richer and more engaging and I just absolutely loved it. Um, it's just so sensual. The soundtrack has barely ever left barely left Spotify for me the whole year. It's just so gorgeous. Nicholas Patel's music. And I know there's a lot of other people out there listening who are also fans of that music. Um, yeah, it was just a real highlight for me. It just kind of stayed at the top. Of my, I kept waiting for things to bump it off the top of my list, but nothing really came that close. It's the only five-star film, I think, for me in a wow. year full of four and a half stars. Are you the only person who's had a first half of the year film? I think I might be, three? yeah. From when we, did a, when we had Claire join us, yeah, yeah, I think that might be the only one that stayed up there. I'm sorry, baby. I didn't mean that for you. I love you. You know that. I do, and I understand what you're going through because I'm with you. The things that tormented me the most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive. Um, and so we're going to finish up finally with our honourable mentions, films that didn't quite make our top three films of 2019. Anders, do you want to kick us off with some of the films that you feel are exceptional? Yes, I'd love to do a shout-out to Parasites, uh, which is still screening in cinemas, so you can still catch that if you haven't and you really should. Um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, concur entirely um, with everything you said about that, Eloise. Uh Matthias and Maxim, Xavier Dolan's film, which I found a really, 
I don't know, really moving portrait of late 20-something, early 30-something life. Um, Yen Tan's 1985, which is a very moving film. Yes. All of us love that one. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, very simple but beautiful. Might be tricky to find but definitely worth tracking down. It's short, it's black and white, it's so moving, yeah. It is. And, And, yeah, great. Um, performance for Michael Chiklis in that. And finally, the documentary Evelyn, which is on Netflix, which is, a, again, a very sort of moving, uh, touching film about a family dealing with the death of one of their family members um, by suicide. And so they all walk together as a family across the UK. And for the first time, like a decade after this event happened, they begin uh, while they're walking to process it really as a family. It's really quite moving and beautifully shot, like just stunning cinematography. Um, you can watch that on Netflix. Right. Thank you. Yeah. I hadn't heard of that film. Yeah, it's a good one. Ello? I need to mention Bigan's film Long Day's Journey Into Night, which I believe was my most anticipated of the year. Andy might have. Correct. More good. Okay, great. Solid memory, both of us. My actual memory of the experience is extremely foggy in a beautiful way because it was the last film I saw at MIFF at like 6.30 on the final evening, very sleepy. It was right, in fact, immediately after my second viewing of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So I was, of course, in a great mood, but just like a stunning experience. Two and a half hours, the last 50 minutes is one shot and you put your 3D glasses on. Anyway... What an experience. Great to kind of have that one in a really nice cinema. So that's on my list, The Nightingale, mm-hmm. Jennifer Kent film that Andy, you had. Um, really powerful. And yeah, you're right. You know, that the brutality is completely necessary, not just, you know, there is, you know, some kind of fancy look what I can do with the movies kind of thing. But mm. yeah, really, really integral to the core of the film. Probably I'd put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there. Ad Astra as well. Oh yeah, which really struck me. The score is incredible. The yeah. you know yeah, Brad Pitt's face, his sad little eyes, his beautiful wrinkles and hair. Anyway, I mean, <laughs> not it's not just this is not just a Brad Pitt like <laughs> fan fan moment. Um, you know, I mean, I know it's kind of controversial, but I did really like his um sort of melancholy, reflective voiceover mm. that yeah. that was laced throughout the film. Um, well, I've got to single out a couple of films that haven't come out here yet that I caught. The Lighthouse, I really, really loved, and I think that's due out in January or February. Um, the Personal History of David Copperfield, Amanda Iannucci's film with Dev Patel as uh, David Copperfield and Tilda Swinton and Hugh Laurie. It's a fantastically rollicking good fun. Um, it's very, very meta, very self-referential and just really thoroughly enjoyable, a bit over the top. I really like Booksmart. And uh, House of Hummingbird was a, a film I caught at MIFF that I've mentioned here on the podcast before that I really, really liked. Of course, Portrait of Lady on Fire, definitely. That was my number four, I think. And One Child Nation was a documentary that really stayed with me that you got us to watch. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I'm that very was glad. excellent, isn't That it? was really outstanding. And I th- see that it's made its way into the Oscars final has it? shortlist cool. of best documentaries, which I think is great. Fantastic. Do you know what else has made its way onto the best documentaries? And I think also best foreign film. Um, the shortlist that were released today is Honeyland. Yeah. That um, Macedonian Turkish oh, yeah. film about the beekeeping lady that I was the first film I saw at MIFF, funnily enough. And it was so good and just really beautiful and kind of funny and very endearing and personal, but also, you know, very evocative of a space and a culture. And it's so exciting because, <laughs> yeah. you know, when I watched it, I yeah. was like, oh, this is really nice. But, you know, uh, are people going to – is this a thing that people are going to pay attention to or is it just any old documentary? Anyway. I just want to very briefly mention uh, before we go, Judy, which I finally saw months after it came out and really, really found emotionally, almost emotionally overwhelming. It started off very dully, uh, but then it got very emotionally moving. I think that's – because Zellweger gave gave her all in that performance, um, and also very interesting in terms of post Me Too treatment of classical Hollywood figures. It's really interesting. Film. Oh, good, yeah. Because yeah. the conversation around that's really kind of disappeared. Yeah. It has, hasn't it? It has. Yeah. No, I think it deserves a bit more. Um, well, thank you very much for listening to this uh, final episode of 2019 for Cultural Capital. 
Oh, I thought you were about to. Okay, you just no, want to open I was your mouth. Just making a face. All oh, right. Okay. Final episode. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. we'll be back it's around um, end of January after we've kind of come back from various um, trips and stuff like that. Thank you very much for sticking with us. You probably know where to find us on Facebook and Twitter already. I'm at Andy Ricky. I'm at Anderson's. I'm at Eloise Low Ross. And we think we think you're great. Yeah. Yeah.